Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called The Way of Jesus, a study in the Gospel of Mark. During this series, we want to spend time with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live the way of Jesus. Thank you for joining us. All right, just be honest. How many of you usually go to the 1030 service? Because this is not what nine usually looks like. Raise your hands. When I was a freshman in high school, I used to have to walk or ride my bike to school. And every day after school, when I would get back into my neighborhood, there was this senior in high school who would basically tell me and another friend I would walk with that he's going to beat us up. And so every day, no joke, after school, we would run home or we would ride our bikes home. We would try to separate so we only had one chance uh, at catching us. That week, later that week when this happened... I saw him at our youth group. And needless to say, I was surprised he was there, and I did not want to welcome him there. I didn't want him there. And this morning, as we continue our series together, looking at the Gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus, we're going to look at two stories of two outsiders who many people wouldn't want Jesus to welcome into the kingdom. So if you would, would you take your Bible and turn it to Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. As we say every week, if you don't have a Bible with you or a device with you, you can take one of the Bibles we have in the seat underneath you there, one of those black Bibles. Take that home as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have your own copy of God's Word, and you can find this story on page 819. Now, just a little context as you're turning there. Last week, Brian taught us about Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees who were putting tradition above the Word of God. It was an incredible message, so applicable for us today in the time we are living in. So I'd encourage, if you didn't listen to it, to go back and listen to it. But immediately after this confrontation, in our text, in verse 24, it says, Jesus left that place where he had this confrontation and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Now let me just show you a map of what's going on here. You might not be able to see that so clearly, but most of what Jesus did, most of his ministry was right there in the area of Galilee. But we're told here, right after this confrontation, he he heads straight north into Gentile territory, into foreign territory. He makes this little trip up north, and then he comes back down. Now, not everybody understands why Jesus would do this. Some people think he was just trying to get away, to be alone, to maybe disciple his disciples a little bit. But I also think there's a bigger reason for this, and this is kind of the big idea for this little section in Mark that we're going to be looking at together. Mark wants to communicate something to us, and it's this. If you're following on your notes with me this morning, the kingdom of God is for outsiders too. Specifically, the kingdom of God is for Gentiles. How many of you long-term Cherry Hillers know what Gentiles are? Anybody who's not Jewish, that's pretty much all of us in this room. They weren't the insiders, right? They were the outsiders. And what's cool is in the previous section, Jesus had just taught that whatever happens from the outside, whatever we eat on the outside does not defile us. What defiles us is what comes from the heart. And so it's pretty awesome that right after saying that, Jesus goes into what many Jewish people would think was defiled areas And by doing that, he's declaring there are no defiled people, unclean people either. So let's look at the text together. This is an awesome text. It's really two stories with two applications. And I'll talk a little bit about that at the end. But look at verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. 
He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. Jesus, as he's tried many times, we've seen, right? I just got to get alone. I got to get some alone time, maybe to teach the disciples some private discussion. But as often happened, someone recognized him, even in a foreign land, and his private time is disrupted. Verse 25, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now, just a little pause here. To say she was Greek does not mean she was Greek from an ethnic standpoint. Like the guy running for Secretary of State, right? Alexi Giannoulis, that's definitely a Greek person. But rather, she is a Greek-speaking Gentile, an outsider, not a part of God's kingdom, his chosen people. And you got to understand, of all the people who will approach Jesus in the gospel of Mark, this lady's resume is not fit the bill. It's like the worst resume you could possibly have. We're told she is a woman. We know in this time, women weren't treated equally. Jesus turned that upside down. She was a Greek Gentile, and she came from one of the most pagan areas of the entire world. If you're following on your notes, everything was against her from an insider's perspective. I got to think even Levi, the tax collector, raised his eyebrows at this woman who approached Jesus begging him to heal his daughter. Despite this, she will not back down, right? I love what Tim Keller says. There are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and then there are parents, Parents will do anything for their children. And Mark tells us this woman woman fell at his feet. This is only the second time this happens in the gospel. The other time was with Jairus, the synagogue ruler, right? A symbol of humility, a symbol of worship. And you couldn't have two more different people. Jairus was as insider as it gets, a synagogue ruler for the Jewish people. This woman is an outsider as far as you can get. But she's desperate. And she believes somehow that this Jesus that she had heard about probably from someone else distantly is the only hope that she has for her daughter. So despite everything stacked against her, if you're following, she believed and begged Jesus to heal her daughter. Now the tense here in the Greek language is not that she just begged once. It's that she's begging over and over and over and over again. In fact, Matthew's gospel, a version of this story, he writes this in verse 22, Matthew 15. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. She's just begging Jesus, and we're told that she's noisy about it. So noisy that the disciples ask that she be sent away. Now, I deal with this kind of begging, noisy begging, every single day. You see, we have two pugs. If you know anything about pugs, pugs are food crazy. And so it happened when we first had them, right? They would start to beg for their dinner at about three o'clock. And we tried to put that off. We're like, no way, right? Like five o'clock, I'm standing firm. (sighs) That became four o'clock. That became 3.30. That is now 3 o'clock that our dogs eat their dinner. Now, don't judge me. Do you want to see what it's like living in our home? Take a look at this. 
All right, everybody. You are about to see what true begging looks like. You ready for this? Now you know. Now we come to one of the most confusing things Jesus ever says, in my opinion. Look at verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What? Right, that's got to be one of the more confusing things Jesus says, calling this woman a dog. Now, Gentiles in this time were called dogs by the Jewish people, literally like the street dogs, the mangy dogs, meaning these were unclean people that we weren't going to associate with. It was definitely taken as kind of a slur against them. So how are we to understand this from the lips of Jesus? Well, I'll say five things about this. First of all, we know Jesus, right? We know Jesus. We've seen Jesus in the Gospels. Does this seem like something Jesus would say the way the other Jewish people were talking about it? Of course, it's not his way. He's not saying something derogatory here. Second, context is always the key. Remember the controversy with the Pharisees from the last passage, right? Jesus wanted to make the point. It's not what comes from the outside that makes a person unclean. It's what comes from the inside, what comes from the heart. And he declares at that moment, all foods you eat are clean. And so we've seen he's probably getting to this point that all Gentiles are considered to be clean as well. Third and most important here, the word Jesus uses for dog is not the same word that the Jewish people use the word dog to be a derogatory term. He actually uses a different word that means like a small little house pet. Furthermore, in the next verse, we're going to see that the woman continues using that term for herself and for her daughter. And so obviously she doesn't consider it some sort of slam against her. Fourth, and this is important for this story, right? The children of Israel rightfully considered themselves to be children. God's children, God's chosen people. After all, they had been given the covenant of Abraham. They had been given the Torah together. And so the issue at stake here at this moment is whether Jesus has come for the children or for the dogs, for those on the outside. The woman agrees there's a distinction between the children of Israel and Jesus' mission and who she is and for the Gentiles. But, as we're going to see in her response, she makes a little change in how Jesus refers to the Jewish people. Instead of taking a term that means biological children, she turns it more into a Everybody who's in the household. Does this make sense? Like Jesus says, the biological children are who I am here first. And and she says, yeah, but what about everybody else in the household? Can they not be fed from the table as well? And then finally, just notice, Jesus doesn't deny her request. He simply says, first, let all the children, let the children eat all they want. He's not turning her away. So what is he doing? Testing like he does with us. He's reminding her of his priority, of his mission. If you're following, Jesus' priority was first to the children of Israel. This is all he's saying to her. 
This is why I come, first and foremost. Paul says the same thing in Romans 1, 16, where he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. But as this woman is about to point out, the priority of Israel in Jesus' mission does not exclude outsiders. As Messiah, weren't you supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles as well? Let's read her response to him out loud in verse 28. She says, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And because we don't speak their language, because we don't understand their time or their culture, we miss just how brilliant of a response this is by this woman. It would have been so easy for her to walk away in bitter disappointment. Instead, she responds to him with wit, courage, and faith. She does not take offense at what he says. In fact, she doesn't even question the accuracy of what Jesus is saying. She simply and humbly carries his analogy one step farther and says, yeah, but even dogs under the table eat the crumbs from the children. She understands. I agree, Lord. The priority of why you have come is for the Jews first. But then she turns that image into her advantage. But the kingdom of God has room for outsiders too. You've seen that commercial lately where the dad is feeding the child at the high seat and her face is just covered in mess. So he goes to the other room to get a paper towel, comes back, and she's spick and span clean. And he looks over at the dog and, like, the dog's licking his chops. Like, it's kind of what she's saying here. If you're following, she jests that Gentile dogs will share in God's salvation. She's playing along with Jesus here. And get this, she understands the Bible even better than the Pharisees on this point. There's no doubt she's referring to Isaiah 49, 6 here, which says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? So listen, priority is the Jews. The Messiah will come to restore the Jews. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. She's like giving this to Jesus, right? She's fighting back a little bit saying, yeah, I know that's your priority, but don't forget. Don't forget, you also came to be a light unto the Gentiles. We too are invited to eat at the table of the Messiah. She doesn't show a sense of entitlement here. She doesn't think Jesus should heal her daughter or owes it to her. On the contrary, she just comes to him and says, This is the promise you made to us as Gentiles. Let me remind you of this. I think at this point, Jesus is either smiling or laughing. He's really enjoying this back and forth with this woman. He responds to her in this way in verse 29. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. I love how Matthew's version, we get a little more detail. He says, Her daughter was healed at that moment. Uh, Something's messed up here. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Great faith. Incredible faith. For a Gentile woman living in a pagan area. Friends, you never know where the kingdom of God is going to break loose, right? Even for a bully in my neighborhood. The kingdom of God is not too small. In verse 30, we read, she went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was God. I'd say that's better than some crumbs, amen? What a great story. 
We're going to come back to that. The second story in this little section starts this way in verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon. He keeps going north, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region coming south now of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on them. You may or may not remember the first time Jesus went to the area of the Decapolis. This was when he heals the man who was possessed by many demons, by a legion of demons. It's the story where he sends them into the pigs. Remember that? And what did the people want to do with Jesus after that? Get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. Comes back, and now how do they receive him? Yay! He's back, and they're bringing people who need his healing here, friends. And the description of this man with the speech impediment, it says he could hardly talk is once again Mark showing us who Jesus is. You see, it's this Greek word for couldn't talk, megalialos. That's a great word, isn't it? And it occurs only one other time in the Bible. I've warned you two weeks ago how brilliant of a writer Mark is, right? He's never just coming out and saying who Jesus is, but he's constantly showing us who Jesus is. Is And it's no mistake he uses this specific word to describe this man because it's used one other place. This is so important. Look at the reference Mark is making to Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched lands will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. It's talking about the day of the Lord, the return of Messiah. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Those places are Gentile lands. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Now here's the key. Then, Will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf magalialos? Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Magalialos. This is what Mark says happens to this man. And where is this happening? I tried to point this out in the map. Lebanon, just like the prophecy of Isaiah 35 says. Where is Jesus? He's in Lebanon healing a blind and mute man. What's the point Mark is making here? The time has come, baby. Messiah has come to be a light unto the Gentiles. He is doing and fulfilling what God had promised he would do hundreds of years ago. If you're following, Jesus is fulfilling the promise of redemption for all nations. Sad that we missed this, right? Because we don't all know Greek. I'm not a Greek speaker at all. But man, Mark is just an amazing writer showing us who Jesus is. Now let's read verses 33 and 34 out loud on our notes together there. It says, after he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephethah, which means be opened. I just wanted you guys to have to try to say that. Because we have to say stuff like that all the time. And we just try to make it up as we go. Now you'd have to say another strange little verse here, right? 
Why in the world is Jesus healing this man in this strange way? Well, I think it's actually incredible. I love, I love this. It shows us so much about the way of Jesus. The first thing Jesus does is he takes this man aside, right? Can you imagine being deaf and mute in this society where that would basically signal you out as like a sinner or your parents sinned? Chuck Swindoll tells the story of how he used to have a speech impediment when he was young and his greatest fear was being put in front of other people, singling him out as someone who is different. So think of Jesus' compassion here. I'm going to pull you aside away from the crowd that you probably have had to face your entire life. Second, when they're all alone, he does these two really strange things, right? He puts his fingers in the man's ears, and then he spits on his finger and then touches him with his tongue. What's he doing there? What do you think? He's showing him, this is what I'm about to do for you. This is what I'm about to do for you. So he could understand exactly what was about to to happen. He meets this man and touches his place of need. Third, he looks up to heaven with a groan, it says. This Greek word is translated as with a deep sigh. Jesus hates what sin has done to this world. We see this again in John 11 when his friend Lazarus dies, right? We're told he was deeply moved in spirit and he ends up weeping for what has happened in this world. So yeah, it's kind of strange to us, I would agree. But if you're falling on your notes, here's my hypothesis. The way Jesus heals reveals deep empathy and compassion. He treats this man as an individual, not as a problem to be solved, a unique individual to be loved. Verse 35, at this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly the original greek again more vivid it says the chain of his tongue was broken in the new testament the word chain described fetters right that would bind a prisoner essentially what he's saying here is this man has been freed he's been freed from the chains that had held him back isaiah 35 5 fulfilled in the person of jesus verse 36 jesus commanded them not to tell anyone that doesn't work The more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. And then what do they say? Read that. He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Can I give you one more illusion Mark is making here? One more hugely theologically significant phrase. He has done everything well. Is it a reference to Genesis 1 and 2? When God created this perfect world and said, it is very good. And here, these Gentile outsiders recognize in Jesus what he does is very good. In fact, if you're following on your notes, the crowd rejoices in Jesus restoring the goodness of creation. Isn't it awesome how the Bible connects? One big story It's just one big story, and Mark is just incredible at connecting it for us. Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, the creator, Jesus, the redeemer, Jesus, the restorer of a broken, sinful world. Jesus does everything well. Interestingly, their reaction is quite different from the children. 
the people of Israel, right? Earlier, instead of marveling and celebrating, the Jews accused Jesus of using Satan's power to heal people and to cast out demons. But these pagan Gentiles see these miracles that Jesus does and declare he does all things well. He is the one we have been waiting for. He is the one who is worthy of worship. If you're following as a light to the Gentiles, Jesus is received with faith and awe. The outsiders get it. The insiders miss it. Two incredible stories. Now, here's the thing. I kind of mentioned this earlier. I think these two stories have one big theme, right? The kingdom of God is for the outsiders. But when you dig into them separately, I think they have two different applications. The story we just looked at with the man here, I think, is really about the compassion and love for Jesus and his promise to us. No matter what you're facing right now, one day it will be restored. And we will declare it before the throne of heaven. He does everything well. And how we as the church, until that time, are called the body of Christ. And we are to be that body by ministering to people in need today with compassion, with love, with individual care for who they are. I feel like we've talked about this specifically in Mark 5, when Jesus heals the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to focus on application on that first story. And if you're following on your notes, her story is about a faith that greatly pleased Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want Jesus to look at me one day like he does to her and say, woman, you have great faith. Although I want him to say, man, you have great faith, but you get the point. Do you want that? You want to stand before Jesus sometime? And he goes, you have great faith. How do we get there? I think this woman gives us an example of what great faith looks like. First, what is faith? Chuck Swindoll describes faith this way. I have it on the screen here. Having faith is believing that God is who he says he is, trusting in his integrity to do what he says he will do. It is being confident that he will always do what is right for our good and for his glory. I love that definition because it doesn't mean great faith means Jesus will always do what I want him to do. It means Jesus will always do what is good for me and what will bring him the most glory. It's being confident of that. The woman described in this passage believed who Jesus was, even though she, of all people, had the least chance to know it. And he, she trusted that Jesus would do what was promised to the Gentiles all the way back in Isaiah. He was the light to the Gentiles, and she was confident enough to come to him and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask and beg. And as we close, I'm going to point out five things that I think make this lady's faith great And I'm going to ask us, is this something we're demonstrating in our lives as well? First, her faith was great because she had persistence. And yes, the fourth word in all of the notes there is going to be great. If you need to fill that out, go ahead right now. I'll give you a little second here. My son likes to fill everything out that he thinks he knows the answer to. Persistence. She begged. She pleaded. She was bold. She intensified her request to the point of shouting. This is what the disciples were complaining about, but she would not give up. Friends, did you know that you and I have the freedom to bother Jesus with our prayers whenever we want? He's infinitely patient. If you're not seeing results from your prayer life, the situation seems impossible. Don't give up. Keep coming to him. 
Keep on coming him. Don't back off. He loves when his children come to him demonstrating their faith. When he doesn't answer right away, let me just say, is it because he doesn't hear us? Or is it possible he wants to teach us something? Is it possible he might be accomplishing something wonderful in us by having us be persistently coming to him again and again and again? Is it possible that persistence is how we develop great faith? Keep at it. Remain persistent. Deliberately wait for God to work. My prayer life was a lot more like, have you ever heard of Ding Dong Ditch? I'm ashamed to say I did this as a young person. But you basically go and ring at somebody's doorbell and then you run away, right? That's kind of how my prayer life was in the past. Lord, do this in my life. Oh, you didn't do it. Okay, I'm done. And Jesus invites us to demonstrate faith by coming to him again and again and again, persistently asking for what we want him to do. And if he doesn't answer the door right away, maybe he's teaching us something about prayer and about persistence and about faith. The kingdom of God is for those like this woman who are willing to spend untiring energy pursuing spiritual things. They are persistent. Jesus tells a parable about this. He says this in, before the parable. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. I mean, think about some of the people Jesus commends in the gospel. He commends the friends of the paralytic man who, despite the crowd being too big to get in, they decide, oh, we're going to climb up on the roof. We're going to dig through 18 inches of sod and sticks, and we're going to put our friend down before him. And Jesus is like, oh, yes, that's great faith. Doing whatever it takes to find me. Doing whatever it takes to live out a life of faith. Please don't misunderstand. If you're sitting here right now like, I don't get this. You don't have to beg Jesus. It's not because this woman begged Jesus that he finally answered her prayer like, oh, enough of this. He was testing her. He was helping her develop a greater faith in him. She doesn't earn healing. It's just a demonstration of how much she really wanted to see God act in her life. So let me ask you, do you persistently and passionately pursue anything that only Jesus can do for you? Or are you a ding-dong ditcher? Do you walk by faith no matter what difficult life situation has you in right now? I'm going to persist. I'm going to trust in who Jesus says he is. Maybe things don't look how I want them to look right now, but I'm going to keep going. Is your faith great enough to believe he's teaching you in those moments something he couldn't teach you anywhere else? Second, her faith was great because of her humility. Instead of being offended by Jesus' response, she humbly accepts the description of dog, but then turns it into her advantage. This is the key to great faith. She acknowledges, you know what, Jesus? You're right, I deserve nothing. But would you spare a few crumbs at the table for me? Nobody comes to the kingdom of God without humility. There will not be one proud person in heaven. Jesus said the very same thing in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon he ever gives. Would you read this out loud with me up on the screen here? It says, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those like this woman who say to Jesus, you're right, I have nothing that I can bring to you. Only by your mercy, only by your grace, can I come into your household and feast at your table. Friends, that is faith. It's the first step of faith. If there's a curse in the 21st century right now, it's this attitude growing that I'm owed something. God owes me. Society owes me. My family owes me. God owes us nothing except eternal punishment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. But thanks be to God that by his grace, when we come to him in humility, we are blessed and welcomed into the kingdom of heaven forever. Have you done that yet? I know people have sat for years in a church and they've never humbled themselves in this way because they think, I'm doing good things. Surely God is pleased with me. He's not. Until you come to him and say, I, I got nothing. I deserve nothing, not even crumbs at the table. The moment you do that, though, he says, welcome home, child, son daughter. If you have done that at some point in your life, friends, stop the entitlement. Stop the God owes me. I do this. Instead, our only response can be thanks be to you. You have given me the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Third, her faith was great because of her focus. The woman saw one person and no one else. If I'm reading into the story a little bit, we don't see any mention of a husband. We don't see any mention of a family here. I, I would guess she's probably alone. Can you imagine raising a demonized girl by yourself? Pretty sure the neighbors are going to shun this person, right? This affected her whole life. But instead of complaining, instead of giving up, instead of wallowing in self-pity, instead of looking for a way out, she set her focus not on her circumstances, not on her situation, She set her focus on the only thing, the only person that could bring her healing and health, and that is Jesus. I love her example. I need her example. Because so often I'm looking like this at life. Why does this have to happen? Why is this going on? Why is this situation doing this? Why are my circumstances so hard? How are you doing at that today? Where are you fixing your eyes? I think too many of us today are fixing our eyes on the moral decay of our country, the economic collapse, the situation I find myself in, the eighth surgery I just had to have. Great faith, we say, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, no matter what I am facing. Fourth, her faith was great because of her joy. I could be reading into this, but man, I bet this woman was fun to be around. I bet you she was a blast. Here she is dueling wits with Jesus, and she wins. So much so that Jesus is laughing like, you have such great faith. Go home, your daughter's healed. She doesn't take herself so seriously, even in a horrible situation. She chooses joy. Does joy happen to us? Joy is something we choose. Every day, like the Paul writes to the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Just like this woman, right? In a severe trial, she still chose joy. How's joy going for you? 
Are you having fun following Jesus? Or is it a drudgery? Is it marking through the check boxes of what I'm supposed to do every day? We are to have joy as followers of Jesus. This is something I need to be reminded of all the time. This is something we choose. It's not just going to happen to you. Finally, her faith was great because of her confidence. She knew the truth of what Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.12. Do we have that? Can we read this? In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Do you have confidence in him? In faith, knowing that you can approach him, believing Jesus is who he says he is, trusting his integrity, that he will do what is best for you and bring glory to himself through his life, even if it's not what you want things to be. That's faith. Persistence, humility, focus, joy, confidence. These are the marks of great faith. And so as we close, I want you to just review these qualities and ask yourself this question. We're going to take some time to consider it in prayer. Would Jesus assess my faith as great today? If not, which one of these things would he want to encourage you in? As we prepare our hearts for communion, let's pray. Jesus, above everything else, we thank you that this story is about us. It's about you welcoming the outsiders, the Gentiles. How easily we take that for granted today. Sitting in church, we were once far away, but you have brought us near. Now we sit at your table as your sons and your daughters. We have nothing we can say other than thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now as we prepare for communion, as Paul reminds us, we're to examine ourselves. So as we think about faith today and what makes great faith, we open ourselves up to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to reveal to encourage. If we need to confess, we confess. If we need to rejoice, we rejoice. Father, often like the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. We pray that you will help us to grow and develop a greater faith that can weather the storm of whatever life circumstances face us. Help us to be a church, to be a people who fix our eyes on you and you alone, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. 
If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.